This week, uh, we're starting a short little series on living satisfied, uh, how can we pursue a fully formed life uh, around God. Uh, this year, earlier the year, we said that we wanted the whole church to make and keep personal formation plans, meaning owning your, for yourself your own discipleship and journey towards living a life close to God, in communion with God, uh, all of that really wonderful stuff. We did a training. We have this little grid thing. Uh, later this week, I'll send out uh, a link to where you can create it again if you want or create it for the first time, but you'll also be asked to process it in your DNA groups and all of that. And so this month, we're focused on how do you live this fully formed life with God? Uh, but do you ever have those things in your life uh, where you think you should know them, but you actually don't know them? Like it seems like everybody else is super aware of what it is, and you have these kind of inclinations of how to do that thing or what that thing really means, but you really don't have any understanding, and you're too sheepish to kind of ask because everybody else seems to know. Things like uh, when someone makes a list and then they say, the former and the latter, right? Anyone read that in a book and you're like, they're like, it's, it was great and it was bad. And I mean the former, not the latter, right? And you're like, oh yeah, we all know what that means, right? I don't. I've looked into it. I have to research it every time I read something like that. Or how to use the word whom. Just sort of dangles out there as this terrifying thing of, I guess it's who's, you know, that's how we kind of play around with it. I believe that personal formation or learning how to walk closely with Jesus in all areas of life is one of those things where we kind of look around if we're in the church, we're like, it seems like everybody knows how to go through life talking with God, enjoying God, all of those things except for me, and I'm too, like, it's, I'm too far in now to ask, right? Kind of like I have a neighbor, I didn't know his name, we talked all of the time. You know what I did? I went to public records and found out who bought the house. And that's how I was like, oh yes, my neighbor David. And I just kept saying his name over and over again. I was way off, by the way, on what I thought his name was. But this is kind of how it is with personal formation. We're kind of unsure of how do we live a life in this constant uh, apprenticeship to the life of Jesus. Uh, and here's the little secret. Uh, most of us, many of us, are kind of faking it and are unsure. Not faking uh, earnestness, not faking desire or longing to know God or to love God. We're not faking that. Uh, we're not faking belief. We all believe in Jesus and long to see Jesus in our life. But when it comes to practically how do I follow God or what does that even mean for me to have a, a personal thriving relationship with God and to have God reshape my whole life, we're like, we don't really know how to do that. Uh, and so we want to spend all of this time talking through that. I have a little definition for you. It would have been smart to put it on the slides, but I didn't, so I'm going to say it twice. Uh, personal formation is both the active expression of satisfaction in Jesus, and it's the active pursuit of satisfaction in Jesus. Personal formation is both the active expression of satisfaction, meaning that the formation itself 
you know, sees us become more and more satisfied, and it's the active pursuit of satisfaction in Jesus. We want to find and to know that Jesus is more than enough for every aspect of our life. And that, for me, uh, and what I think even biblically holds up, is what personal formation is. Uh, The Bible also, to set the table, we'll be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Bible says that formation is rooted and overflowing with love. With love. Not discipline, though discipline is very uh, important in all of life. Not theology, though theology is fundamental in like even how you approach uh, walking with God. But the summary, the total of all uh, formation of what our lives are to be like, what every aspect of our lives is to be, Uh, Everything that we do, all that we process, every outcome that you measure life against is measured against love. Love with every fiber of your being for God. Uh, The Bible even prays this way. So in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, uh, in a prayer for the church, says that he prays that we may be rooted and established in love. Earlier, it talks about how we need the Holy Spirit just to awaken in us this thing, that we would know the heights and the depths of God's love. The Bible is praying over you that you would know God's love. Uh, This is the highest aim. This is the highest maturity. Uh, It's the the barometer in which your entire life is is checked uh, and measured. Do you have love for God? The Shema is this passage of the Old Testament where Moses is giving his lasting parting words to the people before they go into Israel. And there's, you know, been all of these books called the law that have been written and they've received. But then Moses gives this parting shot of, hey, look, you could sum up the entirety of all of that I've said, all that God has revealed in this one thing. And this is what it is. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to read 1 through 9. It says this, These are the commands, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that you may go well, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, your, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And then this is the Shema in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home or when you walk along the road or when you lie down or when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is God's word. What he's saying here is that the the lens in which they are to view all of their life, all of their fearing of God, all of their growing uh, in understanding of God, the lens is just love for God. 
It's the thing that you press all your actions to, all your planning through. All of your motivation has to come out of some form of a love for God. And then he even talks, too, about how all of life, all of uh, obedience comes down to just that extraordinary ambition. Like, if you had to have a single ambition, I know we try to, like, put ambition down quite a bit. Like, it's not cool to be ambitious. Uh, Like, you know, I was a child in the 90s where there were all these Disney movies about dads who were too ambitious. So it was, like, really clear, don't be like that. Don't be like Peter Pan when he grows up and Captain Hook. You all see that movie? Is it just me? And it's like, don't be that dad. He wants to do too good at work. Bad dad. Instead, have no ambition at all. But the Bible says, be incredibly ambitious. Be ambitious in having a love for God. Uh, a love for God with every part of who you are. It says here, love the, God, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. With every part of who you are, love God. He goes on to stress just how important it is to learn this truth. So he's saying, write it on your hand. Uh, Put it on your entryway. Put it on your gate. Uh, Make it the whole conversation of your life. Like when you're walking around your, your neighborhood, the thoughts and the conversation ought to be, how am I loving God in this moment? When you're putting your head down at night, he says, when you're going to sleep, the reflection is, do I love the Lord my God with all of who I am? And then it says, when you get up, it should be there too, where you wake up and you say, how possibly will I love God today with everything that I am? Uh, That is the holistic view of being formed. So then to be formed uh, by God to pursue this personal formation is to say, how can I love God with each aspect of who I am as a person? And so that's what we're going to do this month. Each week, we'll take a different aspect. We'll look at the heart this week because it's the first one. And what we'll do is we'll look through what does the Bible say about loving God with your heart. Uh, Next week, your mind, then your strength, and your soul. Uh, We'll look through what does it look like in the Bible? How do you actually practice that? What is the good news in all of this obedience? Okay, so that's what we'll do this month. That's my grand introduction. I almost took a month, but no worries. The heart and the Bible, Uh, that's what we'll talk about today. What is the heart? In the Bible, the heart uh, is a term for the part of us that makes decisions, uh, that understands. Uh, It's so fascinating that the Bible talks about the heart as this thing that can understand. Uh, It's the part of us that believes and trusts. That's where it comes from. It comes from from the heart. The heart also feels. Uh, actually, feelings might be too like easy of a word. Might be better to talk about the, just the full range of emotions. So when David is writing that I'm, I'm bearing my heart before God, he's saying I'm bearing the full range of my anger, my wrath, my jealousy, all of that before God. It says that's the heart. Uh, but really, uh, the heart is all about affections, as Jonathan Edwards would write affections. Uh, It's the driver. Uh, The heart is the desires factory of the person, the things that you really want and that you long for. And what the Bible says is that the heart is like a rudder in a boat. Like if you get in a boat and you have this rudder and it steers, wherever that rudder, however you're pointing it, that's where you're going to go, right? 
And it's saying that the heart is that way. The heart steers your life. That what you long for, what you desire, what you seek with your eyes, with everything like that, that's the exact trajectory of your entire life. Uh, It's put really positively in Proverbs 4.23. It says this, above all else, meaning like the greatest wisdom, the best wisdom, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The heart is this, has this incredible capacity to be a deep well for you that is just an ever-springing, always constant source of life. So guard it, protect it, keep watch over your desires and your longings. Why? Uh, because that's where you're headed in life. Your longings lead you. Listen to them. Uh, reflect on the direction of your beliefs, of your hopes. Uh, One of the best examples of what that actually means, this Proverbs passage, I think uh, that really demonstrates the issue at hand is in Jeremiah. There's two parts of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17 and Jeremiah 29, that I think really helps us understand the heart. Uh, And so we'll start with 17 and this aspect of uh, how does guarding your heart Uh, How does it become a wellspring? How does it actually guide us? Uh, Jeremiah 17 is this point in the story in which Jeremiah is a prophet to the people of Israel. They're rebelling against God constantly. They're turning towards all of these other things. And so uh, God speaks through Jeremiah and tells the people uh, these just fundamental truths. Uh, He says this. uh, This is God, Jeremiah 17 Verse 5, it says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. It says, They dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. Here, God is saying uh, that your heart... uh, Whenever it trusts and it seeks something else, it says that their hearts have turned away from God. It it takes them to this complete wasteland, dry, shriveled thing. It says that your heart is like a person dwelling in a parched land. Uh, You're a shrub in the desert. And we're privileged to where we can just drive and see deserts, you know, anytime we want, if we're willing to put up with the traffic. And out there you see these strange plants that are clinging on to survival, just clinging on to like exist. They grow these weird sprouts and they have thorns and all of these things just to hold on to some amount of moisture. God is saying that, look, if you trust in men and you trust in these other things, if you turn your affections away from God towards anything else, it's not that you're headed towards a desert, it's that you're already there and you're this shrub that's just clinging on for life. Uh, They had turned to riches, to the mighty strength of other people, military power. They even looked up to the hills and worshiped the hills and things in the hills. They turned towards all sorts of pleasure and using other people. And he's saying, look, if you turn away from God, you're in the desert place. That's it. Your heart can't have that uh, and sustain itself. It's pretty heavy. Uh, The Bible is setting up this intense dichotomy. That if your hearts, uh, your desires, your affections, your hopes, your trusts, if it shifts away from God, even if it's for like a cute child, uh, even if it's for a meaningful job, 
even if it's for your idea of what community should be like, even if it's for walkability or nature, if you turn your heart against God, it will take you out of the land of the living instantly. There is no double choice. But Jeremiah continues. He says this, uh, starting in verse 7. He says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence or belief is in him. They will be like a tree planted in the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It le- its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Here's the other direction, the way of the heart and the affections towards God. It says the one that trusts God is like a tree planted by the water. Major Psalm 1 vibes here from Jeremiah. It's one of those big cross-referencing points. This big picture that the Bible holds of someone who actually focuses and loves God is someone who's deeply rooted and they have all of this life and they don't have to be concerned. It sends its its root system is really big and broad. Uh, There's a big difference between like a live oak tree and a shrub in the desert, right? Like the whole system is different. The whole amount of life and fruitfulness is completely different. And so as Jeremiah is saying, look, there's the person who turns away from God. They're a shrub in the desert. Then there's a person whose affections and hearts are towards God. And they're like this thing that never ceases to bear fruit. Now, there's something interesting in this. I don't know if you saw it. But it says that the one who trusts the Lord uh, will have fruit in the drought. It's really interesting to me. Uh, the, the two still live in the desert or the dryness or the heat. It's not saying, hey, the one that loves God never experiences dryness or drought or difficulty. It talks about there's a, just a difference in what happens. The one whose heart is bent towards God, whose affections are turned towards God, They'll thrive and be fruitful even when things are tragic and lost and gloomy and hard and dry. Even when the world looks as if it is going to upend itself, the person whose affections are for God are someone who will be still fruitful and rooted. It's pretty fascinating to me that rootedness and life and thriving isn't coming from external circumstances, but coming from an inward position of your heart. So that sounds pretty uh, intense, pretty wonderful. It's just a nice thing to know that, hey, you might still experience a drought in your life, but you'll still be fruitful if your heart is turned towards God. So what does all of this, John, uh, Jeremiah 17, tell us about the heart? The you know, our hearts have a choice. They steer our lives. Uh, will we bend towards God, our hearts, or will we have our hearts bend towards other things? The setting could be the same. You know, you could be in a vocational rut. You could be in a relationally difficult time. You could be financially feeble. You could have all of these things. They might be the exact same between two peoples, but someone whose heart has this incredible capacity to love God, and somebody whose heart has turned towards other things uh, produces a completely different outcome, even though the circumstance might be the same. 
Uh, in the heat of the moment, will we seek to love God or will we turn our hearts towards our kids, our politics, our houses, our careers, our spouses, our hobbies? Like, what will your heart turn towards? Uh, this is something that I don't think we fully understand the gravity of, that we humans were made for God, made for life with God, uh, that there's abundant life in God loving him, knowing him, that's abundant life. And then there's literally no life outside of him. That's, that's the way that the Bible portrays it. That's the truth of the world, that there is no dabbling. We want to think of it as, ah, oh, like I kind of love God and I kind of don't, and it all works out in the end. I've like hedged it. You know, I have a money market account and I've got a lot of different things in my portfolio and it's all good because isn't it good, God, that some of me wants to love you? The Bible says, no, no, there's only one way. Like you can love me and that's life abundant and then there's nothing else. Literally just nothing else. Jesus says it this way. Your heart can't split affections. You can't serve two masters you can't love this thing, he says, manna or bread, and love me. The heart doesn't function that way. And so you might think, great, let's choose the option of the tree, not the shrub. I'll just love God, right? As we're all in the like, let's love God camp, right? Let's not be the shrub in the desert. I don't care how cool a cactus looks. It's like, I would rather be a tree, right? Yeah, okay. That sounds great. We'll choose to love God. We'll guard our heart, as the proverb says. We'll see it become a wellspring of life, except the very next line that God says. He says this, the heart, in verse 9, is deceitful above all things, and it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Some of the translations say that the heart is deceitful all the time and sick beyond healing. The heart is deceitful. Pretty depressing, maybe. We can try, but the heart is going to be easily deceived. We can all walk out this door right now and say, I've, Brad gave a great little talk there about the Bible. I'm going to love God, but your heart will be deceived. Maybe it'll take two minutes, five minutes. If you're really, you know, crushing it or nothing else is happening in your life, maybe you'll go an hour. And in an hour, you'll like get some coffee you didn't like and, and then you'll love something else. The heart is easily deceived. Uh, the heart is sick beyond healing. It can't even function that way. If the choices are love God fully or don't live at all, we can't choose that. Our hearts are incapable of doing the love God thing, and so I guess we're just in the land of the no living. Uh, Martin Luther said, the human heart is always bent on itself. That's what Jeremiah is saying. The person who trusts in man is like a cursed person. And that's what was true for the people that Jeremiah was talking to. Their hearts were easily deceived. They were sick constantly, they never returned or started worshiping or loving God again. Instead, their hearts were bent towards other things. They ended up in chains, crossing rivers, weeping and wailing as they went into exile apart from it all. Uh, interestingly, their reaction to that kind of confrontation of understanding that the heart's easily deceived, 
their reactions to that were a lot like ours. So there was one group that said, all right, let's kill the heart. Let's take the heart out of it. Let's just stop trying to feel. Put a big wall right here, no emotions, no thoughts, no feelings. Why? Because the the heart is deceitful. Let's get rid of it altogether. The second group uh, was people that said, you know what? No, let's chase good feelings, good vibes. And there were priests at the time that came and said, hey, God's got this. You're good. God doesn't, God's fine. You know, and they, they, you could come to hear these priests and they would tell you that life is all good. You're good. Life is good. And they, they would chase the good feelings. Another group just quit. You know, they deconstructed, they deconverted, they abandoned it all. They're like, this isn't worth anything. This is a losing battle. I'm out. There was another group that said, I think we could work really hard and tame the heart. If we, had, if we just did a few more rules, or if we got just a little bit more disciplined, or if we somehow keyed in on the right practices and the right rhythms and the right, the right things to do, would our, our heart would be tamed. We just have to be really disciplined with it. And they tried it all, and they were still in exile. They're still like a shrub in the desert. But then in Jeremiah 29, something interesting happens. God brings a different way of repairing a sick heart. Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 10, it says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. It's God speaking. He says, when the 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me, and you will find me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the other way. It starts this way. God says, I'm going to come and visit you. God initiates a renewal of their hearts and who they are as people. God comes and says, I'm, I'm coming to you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to visit you. I love that language. It's like when my grandmother's coming in a few weeks, and she just can't wait to visit with me. You know? I love that language, the visit with you. Because it's like, I'm going to come and hold space relationally and physically with you. And that's what he's saying. God's saying, I'm going to come to you, visit with you. Why? God says, because I have plans for you. I have plans. I have a dream. I have a hope for you, and it's not for destruction, it's for life, it's for thriving. God has a hope for the people of Israel, and it's for them to be alive. It's pretty phenomenal. Not plans to destroy them, but plans to make them prosper. I wonder, do you believe that God can visit you and remind you of his promises, of the hope of the life that he has for you, a life of wellspring. See, one of the things that this passage talks about, the whole story of Jeremiah and the people of Israel, is this really wonderful fact that God's desire is for people. It's a great 
simple fact. If loving God with all of your heart is about desire, like your desire for God, you have to also understand that God's desire is for you first. That his desire and his longing is for you, like right now. The first, whose desire is it? It's his desire at the first. In the middle, whose desire is it? It's God's desire for you. At the last, whose desire is it? It's God's desire for you. This is what John says when he says, God loved us first. Isn't this phenomenal? This is pretty amazing. So what's going to make your heart right? God says, oh, it's actually this. I'm going to come to you because why? I long for you. There are things that I long for you, and it's your prosperity. It's your thriving. Church, what if we knew just this basic eternal truth that we are loved by God and that he is for your thriving and that God initiates a renewal of the heart? God's the first actor here. Then God tells him what will happen. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to visit you in my kindness because I have this hope for you. What's going to happen? God says, then you're going to turn on to me and you're going to call on me. That's what he says in verse 12. Then, then you're going to say, okay, God, and you're going to respond to that kindness. And you're going to call on God and you're going to pray to God. Pretty amazing. The same language. You're going to go sit and visit with God. You're going to talk with God. What happens when God comes to us? We repent. That's what this word is. We repent. We turn. Our hearts are turned towards other things. Now they're turned towards God. And here are some of the sweetest words that you'll find in all of the scripture. Jesus, or God says, you will pray to me and I will hear you. I will listen to you. I'll welcome you in. I'll listen to your struggle I'll give you my ear. I will draw out your heart. But this heart work isn't over. It continues. Verse 13, uh, it says that after that, you're going to seek God. And you're going to seek him with your whole heart. With all of you. After his kindness, after he's listened to you in repentance, then you're going to seek him. Talking about belief. Like you're going to chase for God and God alone. It's going to be right great, like right there. And God says, you know what's going to happen when you do that, when you seek me? You're going, to, you're going to be out there looking for me, and I'm going to be right there. You're not going to have to go far. I'm going to be standing right there, not a distant God, but a close God. And that's, you know, not all. After his initiation and his kindness and his drawing to repentance and us turning towards belief and seeking him, then it's a whole heart transformational thing happens. He says, I'm going to restore you to the fruitful place. I'll bring you back. A fruitful place like a tree planted by a stream that's got all of these leaves and fruit on it. But who's doing this again? God. God's the one that's doing the whole process making sick hearts well, making them wellsprings of life. David knew this, that, that it's God that has to come and do something to the sick hearts. That's why he prayed in Psalm 51.10. He says, create in me, God, a pure heart and renew in me a steadfast uh, spirit within me. This is not a taming of the heart or the killing of the heart, but this is God making new a heart. 
Ezekiel 36, uh, God is telling the people again what he's going to do with them. And he says, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. God, God interjects himself, comes to us. We turn to him. He hears us. We seek him. He's right there. He makes our hearts new. And here's what's great. This isn't just like an Old Testament weird thing in Jeremiah. This is the whole story of Jesus. This is, fun. This is like what we believe. So sometimes we're like, oh, personal formation, that's like different. Like I came into the church, Jesus is great, grace, mercy, love, that's so awesome. Now I need to figure out how to discipline myself to pray. No, the story that you come into the faith is the same story that makes you fully formed in Christ. Jesus initiates. He so loves the world. He comes into it happy. He didn't consider it a thing to be scoffed at. He was like, no, I'm going to descend into this world. Why? Out of the joy set before him. It's like, I'm going to suffer. That's what it says in Hebrews. And I'm happy to. Why? Because God initiates a, a plan because he has plans for you, for your prosperity, for your thriving, for your abundant life, not for destruction. Jesus dies for the deceived heart. The deceived heart that's shriveled up in the desert, he dies for it. Jesus rises from the dead to bring your hearts back to life, to renew your heart, to give you a pure heart that only seeks and desires God. And then he transforms it by the Spirit, giving you a heart of flesh that can hear and respond. This is the gospel. This is the formation that we can pursue in Jesus. Does that make sense? There's, there are some practices, but that's the theology of the heart if you want to know what it is. And so, how do we live out that reality? If all of that has happened in Jesus, how do we like live a life shaped by our love for him? How do we give ourselves that kind of posture uh, that says, okay, God, you've come to me. You've, you've reached out to me. I turned around and there you were. And now you're making a new heart in me. How do you care for and guard your heart in this new reality? It's three quick little environments. Uh, one environment is worship. Uh, every day, every week, we're out there being taught to worship other things, uh, whether it's Taylor Swift or access to Taylor Swift, whether it's a, uh, that's just my own familial arena. <laughs> or... <laughs> Or if you're to worship uh, any other thing, you're told that that's the thing. Like, you've got to go out there, turn your affections towards those other things. What happens when we gather to worship here or in our homes or even on walks through the park is we're turning our hearts purposefully to worship what is true and what is right. Another environment is silence and solitude. As Sarah was saying, the world is so busy and noisy. How do we even know what's going on inside of us? How do we bring our hearts to God? And there's this practice of silence and solitude, of being apart from the noise. Uh, it can be a quiet place inside of your house. It can be a quiet place outside of your house. 
uh, and it can be alone without distraction. And what do you do when you're there? There's a few practices. You can do a, what's called an examine, where you just think back on your day. It's like, how did I love you, God, today? Or you can start the day, and you can look at your calendar in, in that silence. This is what's coming up. God, how can I love you today as I, like, look ahead? Uh, the, another environment is friendship and counseling. I comboed two because I thought four would be too much. So really it's four. But the third one is the, the environment of friendship and counseling. You cannot guard your heart alone. It's a tragedy to watch people try. Uh, you need other people. The Proverbs also says that a friend who can draw out the heart is closer than a brother like closer than family blood, somebody who can, you can sit with and they can bring you out and understand like how you're feeling. To, they can get you to share the truth about what's going on inside of you. Like you need friendship. We talked about that a lot at the men's retreat. You need community. You also need, I, I think, a good counselor, not in a replacement of friendship. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, I have a great counselor. It's great. I pay him to be my friend. Uh, I've said that many times. It's a terrible joke because you need friends. You need friends. And you also probably every now and then need a counselor who can draw out your heart and help you process when things are hard and difficult. So those are the three environments uh, that hopefully you'll process more this week. The great sustainer, uh, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with the city? The great sustainer of all missional uh, motivation, like your motivation to see the city transformed. The sustainer of that is not the need. Oh, people need Jesus. Uh, that doesn't sustain you. Uh, incredible strategy, like we've got this figured out, doesn't sustain you. It's actually a worship and communion with God. A heart that is open and knows God will sustain you. Every major advancement of the gospel uh, in the book of Acts happened as the disciples were going to worship or coming from worship, or actually in the midst of it, like at the doors itself. The same is true for Jesus, his miracles, his teaching, his parables, all of those key moments that you see. Even the cross comes after Jesus has had silence and solitude before the Father. Every single one. Where he's communed with the Father and he's returning back with this affection and this heart. And so this is the rhythm of mission too. This is the little trick. I want us to be a more missional people. And I believe that it's from us actually having hearts turned towards God, knowing that we are loved. And that's the fuel for it all. Uh, and so we're going to come and we're going to take communion. Uh, and I pray that in taking communion, we'll remember what he has done to transform our hearts and we'll, get, we'll receive uh, a love for God and understand our love for neighbor deeper and deeper. Uh, I'll pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the work that you've done to make us new, to transform our, our hearts. You're such an incredible, wonderfully good God um, who does what is right, what is perfect, and what is loving. I pray that as we come and take communion that you would remind us of how you care for and guard and watch over our hearts. 
and how you're transforming it into a wellspring of life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.